Welcome to Cardio Radio, a podcast of the Ohio Cardiovascular and Diabetes Health Collaborative, also known as Cardio. This is Dr. Michael Constant from the Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine, and I serve as the principal investigator for Cardio, a statewide network of Ohio's seven medical schools. Cardio is funded by the Ohio Department of Medicaid and shares best practices to improve cardiovascular health and diabetes outcomes and to eliminate health disparities in Ohio's Medicaid population. I hope you enjoy today's podcast. I am Elise Karen, Practice Improvement Coaching Lead for Cardio's Team Best Practices and Associate Professor of Medicine at Case Western Reserve University. Today's podcast will highlight best practices for physical activity in patients with a mobility disability. With me today is Dr. Shirley Moore. Dr. Moore is the Edward J. and Louise Mellon Professor of Nursing Emerita and Distinguished University Professor at Case Western Reserve University. She has a bachelor's degree in nursing from Kent State University and a master's and Ph.D. degrees from Case Western Reserve University. Dr. Moore has an active program of research in cardiovascular disease factor risk reduction focused primarily on increasing physical activity in persons at high risk for cardiac events. Over the past 12 years, she has been the director of a National Institutes of Health-funded Center of Excellence in Self-Management of Chronic Illness Research. She directs the FINE Lab, which stands for Full Inclusions of Persons with Disabilities at the Case Western Reserve University Francis Payne Bolton School of Nursing. The FINE Lab provides a set of consultation and direct services to help clinicians and researchers design approaches to promote improvement of health and fuller inclusion of people with disabilities in research, including persons with sight and hearing loss, as well as other physical and mental disabilities. Dr. Moore has secured more than 40 research grants and eight education training grants. She has been named a fellow at the National Academies of Practice, the American Heart Association, and the American Academy of Nursing. Welcome, Dr. Moore. Thank you. So, Dr. Moore, just how big is the population in the U.S. who have a mobility disability? Mobility disability is the most common type of disability, estimated to be over 8 million people, a substantial portion of whom are wheelchair users. And this number is rapidly growing with the aging of the U.S. population. For example, in the 2010 census, 3.6 million Americans identified as using manual or motorized wheelchairs or scooters. This number is expected to be four times greater in the 2020 census. It's important to remember that people with mobility disabilities are a diverse group. They vary in a lot of ways. They vary in age, the variety of health conditions they have with differing underlying etiologies. They vary in the extent of their functional limitations, and they vary in their use of assistive devices, from people who use canes and walkers for mobility assistance to part and full-time wheelchair users. It's known, unfortunately, that individuals with mobility disability often have poor health outcomes compared to the public in general. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, people with disabilities are three times more likely to have a chronic illness, such as hypertension, cardiovascular disease, and diabetes, yet 50 to 76% of adults with mobility disability do not participate in any physical activity. The good news is that research indicates that people with disabilities do want to participate in more physical activity. For example, a recent study showed that most wheelchair users, 66%, 
want to engage in more physical activity. So Dr. Moore, what are the benefits of physical activity in this population? First of all, the benefits of physical activity for all people, including those with disabilities, benefit from regular physical activity. Research has shown that individuals who participate in recommended levels of physical activity have reduced risk of premature mortality, non-communicable diseases, particularly chronic illnesses such as heart disease, hypertension, and diabetes. They have increased risk of obesity, anxiety, depression, and dementia. And if they participate, they have improved cardiovascular fitness, sleep, and quality of life. Importantly, there's evidence to support these positive outcomes in persons with limited mobility, including wheelchair users. I think often we think about wheelchair users and we don't equate physical activity with them. And one of my goals today is to kind of change that perception. For people with mobility disability, physical activity has been shown to improve flexibility and balance, confidence and self-ambulation, physical fitness, cardiovascular health, physical activity participation also increases participation in activities of daily living and quality of life, as well as reduced depression and reduced falls. Wheelchair users in particular have been shown to be at high risk for obesity, and physical activity can assist them in maintaining a healthy weight. Interventions to increase physical activity could also play a role in improving preventive health care of persons who rely on mobility devices, such as being able to even access primary care services and see their clinicians more often. Physical activity in this population could also increase their workforce participation and, of course, their independence. We need more research, however, on the social participation impacts of physical activity. The physical benefits are more known, but we're working on understanding more about participation and what that means for people using mobility devices. Dr. Moore, are there evidence-based guidelines for increased physical activity in individuals with disability? Yes, even the general ones for the general public, the Physical Activity Guidelines for Americans, published in 2018 by the Department of Human Services, highlights the need for increased physical activity in populations living with disability, and they recommend a mix of strength training and aerobic exercise to promote wellness and prevent disease in this population. Still, the guidelines emphasize the need for more research to identify safety, and especially the types and doses of exercise for specific populations with mobility disability, uh, such as those with spinal cord injuries, multiple sclerosis, and cerebral palsy. It's possible that the doses of exercise to maintain particular impacts might be different among those populations, and we've really yet to study that. In general, though, we know that it works well. Physical activity guidelines for Americans, as we know, recommend both aerobic exercise and muscle strengthening activities. For example, for aerobic, for the general population and for people with disabilities, it's recommended that at least 150 to 300 minutes of moderate intensity exercise a week or 75 to 150 minutes of vigorous intensity be engaged or some combination of those two per week. The recommendation also recommends moderate or greater intensity muscle strengthening activities with involvement of all major muscle groups on two or more days a week. It also addresses older adults and that older adults should do 
multi-component physical activity that includes balance training, as well as the aerobic and muscle strengthening activities. So just how do these general guidelines for the public apply to people with mobility disability? First, as primary care providers, it's important to recognize that our patients with mobility disabilities are looking to us for recommendations, prescriptions, if we will, for physical activity. They want to know what type of exercise they should do, how much to do, and how to do it safely. As professionals, this usually starts with us doing an assessment prior to recommending physical activity so that physical activity can be individualized and based on health and function instead of disability. The exercise prescription also should take into account a person's participation in general life activities and consider factors such as motivation level and depression. The National Center on Physical Activity and Disability has several resources on making physical activity accessible to people of all abilities. What are the risks of physical activity in this population, Dr. Moore? Fortunately, the health benefits of physical activity generally outweigh the risk of adverse outcomes or injury. Studies in generally healthy people clearly show that moderate intensity physical activity, such as brisk walking, has a low risk of adverse events. These adverse events primarily fall into three categories, musculoskeletal injury, injury from a fall while engaging in physical activity, and cardiac events. Musculoskeletal injury increases with the total amount of physical activity that anyone does, For example, a person who regularly runs 40 miles a week has a higher risk of injury than a person who runs 10 miles a week. Participation in contact or collision sports, such as soccer or football, has a higher risk of injury than non-contact physical activities, such as swimming or walking. However, when performing the same activity in general, people who are less fit are more likely to be injured than people who are more fit. Regarding cardiac events, such as a heart attack or sudden death during physical activity, these are rare. However, the risk of such cardiac events does increase when a person suddenly becomes more active than usual. The greatest risk occurs when an adult who usually is inactive engages in vigorous intensity activity. People who are regularly physically active have the lowest risk of cardiac events while being active and overall. There are some special populations in which precautions need to be taken to exercise safely. For example, heat regulation may be a problem in people with spinal cord injuries. This is because of the reduced activity between the spinal nerves and the part of the brain that regulates temperature in our bodies. There are also challenges and physical effects of long-term wheelchair use that might result or affect participation in physical activity, such as shoulder problems, skin breakdown, carpal tunnel syndrome, and urinary tract disorders. The bottom line is that the health benefits of physical activity far outweigh the risk of adverse events for almost everyone. Adults with mobility disabilities should consult a healthcare professional or physical activity specialist about the types and amounts of activity appropriate for their abilities and health conditions. Specifically, what exercises are recommended for persons with limited mobility? I'm going to address this question thinking about two major populations, people who use canes and walkers and those who use wheelchairs. 
So exercise is recommended for people who use canes and walkers should concentrate on maintaining balance and strength in lower limbs, which are particularly important for participation in activities of daily living, as well as participating in common aerobic exercise, such as walking or cycling. Lower limb exercise, such as walking or cycling and swimming, has been shown to improve balance, muscle strength, and cardiovascular endurance. Exercise for improving balance and strength in adults using canes and walkers can be found at the Cardio Ohio website, which is uh, found at cardio.org, if you want to go and check that out. In particular, the sit-to-stand exercise is an excellent exercise to increase muscle strength of legs in older adults. I like this one particularly because it can be taught easily in, in a primary care office to increase flexibility Many common yoga and tai chi maneuvers can easily be adapted to suit people who have mobility disabilities or use a wheelchair. Examples of these adapted yoga and tai chi movements are also available online at the website of the National Center on Physical Activity and Disability. This website, by the way, uh, has information for clinicians as well as a lot of information where your patients can go in and actually watch videos of the various exercises. For wheelchair users, strength training exercise to build strength in the arms, chest, core, and legs are recommended. Demonstrations of whole body strength exercises for wheelchair users can be, again, found at the website of the National Center on Physical Activity and Disability and are referred to also in, at the website of cardio.org. Examples of upper body strength exercise include seated shoulder presses using weights or elastic bands called resistance bands often. Doing these for a longer period of time actually provides aerobic activity as well as strength building. Seated jumping jacks or air boxing also are good uh, for aerobic exercise for wheelchair users. And again, good video demonstrations of all of these are available uh, at the websites that I just previously mentioned. Dr. Moore, do you have some specific advice about how we can better support persons with mobility disabilities successfully engage in physical activity? First, health professionals should work together with people with disabilities to design individualized physical activity plans to help them stay active. I think often we forget to ask people, you know, how do you usually transfer from a wheelchair to the bed or the wheelchair to a chair in your house? Those kind of questions, asking about how they normally do things will help us in planning individualized uh, physical activity plans. An assessment of the ability to participate in different types and amounts of physical activity can be done by the primary care health team. This often uh, means referral to a physical or rehabilitation therapist for assessment and treatment. Prior to prescribing physical activity, the following steps are suggested just to provide safety considerations. Uh, usually it starts with a verbal consultation and a physical assessment and uh, putting together the plan. The plan considers usually a warm-up to the exercise, a slow start and increase in small increments and levels. A safe environment also should be considered, such as removing trip hazards in their home environment or backyard. I know a lot of times in Ohio, when the weather is bad, we suggest indoor walking routines for people in their house. 
uh, having them remove rugs and things that they might trip on is, is should be part of the plan when they think about implementing such a, a routine. Considerations of adaptations and accommodations for balance and physical activity should also be taken into account. For example, making sure that there are rails on stairs in their homes or that they have chairs to get in and out of that have arms in them that they can use for strength. These are thinking about their uh, environments that keep them moving in general. The recommended amount and type of physical activity may vary based on the person's interests and abilities. A summary of the evidence for physical activity and considerations for people with disabilities, again, can be found at the Cardio Ohio website. We also should work with patients to identify and remove barriers for participating in regular physical activity. The CDC guidelines, recommendations, and resources for healthcare providers to use when counseling people with disability on increasing their physical activity include suggestions for addressing barriers to physical activity for adults with disabilities. As I said before, I also highly recommend the resources on the website of the National Center on Physical Activity and Disability. Dr. Moore, what are some of the barriers to physical activity in persons with disabilities? The barriers can be many on different levels. They can include economic issues, such as the ability of someone to buy special equipment or adapting equipment or environment in their home. Another barrier is just professional knowledge, the training and education, perceptions and attitudes of adults uh, without disabilities, including professionals. Another barrier are some of the non-inclusive policies and procedures at the facility or community level and of course availability of resources in general to help make the adaptations and to help the general public and uh, people understand better people with disabilities. As providers, we should also be aware that there are both environmental and people barriers to access preventive healthcare services, uh, especially wheelchair users. We know that the literature says that they put off going to see a primary care clinician uh, just because access is not easy. For instance, I recently interviewed a a woman who was in her 60s, and she had never really had a vaginal exam or a pap smear in her life because her clinician did not know how to do it because she was in a wheelchair. And she says, I could have helped them uh, know how to do those things for me. It's important that we not view wheelchairs as a negative thing. For most wheelchair users, the wheelchair helps them become more independent, not only in performing activities of daily living, but also allowing them to engage more in the community. So they see them as a positive thing in their life. What are some of the limitations in our research base for understanding and using interventions to increase physical activity in people with mobility disabilities? The mobility disabled population is large, diverse, and not well-defined. So, of course, when it comes to researching it, that creates challenges. While several national surveys and research data sets contain information about the extent of disability, few of these include data about whether a mobility device is used, the type of device, or the length or amount of use. Wheelchair use is often not reported in the literature examining the effects of physical activity in populations that are likely wheelchair users. For example, I study physical activity in high-risk populations, and one of those is elderly persons. 
many of whom are wheelchair users. And so it was years before I was willing to drop the exclusion criteria in my studies that they had to be able to walk and be mobile and realizing that I could include wheelchair users in my studies of physical activity. Uh, Much more of that is needed, however. And so when we read those studies about physical activities, physical activities and its impacts, we should particularly look at the extent of what the exclusion criteria were and who they included in the study. When wheelchair use is reported in studies, much of the research focuses on alleviating the primary condition that's led to wheelchair use rather than the impact of wheelchair use on overall health or the impact on health-promoting behaviors such as physical activity. As a result, the amount and impact of physical activity is an ever-present but understudied aspect of the daily life of millions of Americans with mobility limitations. In research, when we've looked across studies, recent meta-analyses addressing the benefits and harms of physical activity in patients who are at risk or for are currently using a wheeled mobility device showed that the current studies are limited to short-term outcomes use few biomarkers, contain little information of the type of mobility device and extent of use, and lacks the use of common outcomes across studies to allow for meta-analyses. So in particular, more studies are needed that assess the minimal dose of physical activity needed to infer the greatest effect and how this varies across the different mobility disability populations. The NIH Office of Disease Prevention just held a three-day conference workshop uh, in December of 2020 to summarize research and make recommendations regarding physical activity and the health of wheelchair users. An official report summarizing the results of this conference, including a review of the evidence of the impact of physical activity interventions in this population, is planned to be released soon. Again, this will be on the website of the Office of Disease Prevention at NIH. Dr. Moore, when you think ahead to the future, what are your thoughts about the support and care we can provide to enhance physical activity in people with mobility disability? I'm hopeful first that as providers of care, we'll not be hesitant to address the physical activity needs of our patients with disabilities. We need to know that we can deliver evidence-based physical activity interventions without fear of doing harm. This means that in the future, we will have more informed guidelines about the type and intensity of physical activities for specific populations who have mobility disability. Next, when I think about the future, I think we need to include more persons with mobility limitations in mainstream research of physical activity. I guess I also see in the future that there'll be more use of technology to enhance physical activity in persons with disabilities, such as the use of sensors and electrical stimulation of muscles. I'm also hopeful that we will have more scalable and enjoyable interventions for physical activity for all people. Dr. Moore, what are the main takeaway points you would like to leave with the listeners? First, that the evidence about the health benefits of physical activity is well established, and there's strong evidence of its benefit for people who have mobility disabilities. Second, reducing sedentary activity and increasing physical activity of people with mobility limitations is especially important because this population has poor health outcomes compared to the general public, and these negative health impacts have been shown to be mitigated by per- participation in physical activity. Another takeaway point 
is that patients want exercise information from their providers. Healthcare professionals play a key role in recommending and supporting persons with disabilities to engage in physical activity. Every person has unique exercise and health needs that will influence the approach to exercise. Last, know that there's a considerable amount of information and resources available for both healthcare professionals and our patients and their families about physical activity for persons with disabilities. Thank you to our featured guest for joining us today, and a special thank you to our listeners for tuning into Cardio Radio. This concludes today's podcast. Be sure to visit cardio.org to learn more about the Ohio Cardiovascular and Diabetes Health Collaborative.